I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast and a very special edition of the Tennis Podcast and back by popular demand, brackets by David Law, of Tennis Relived. We told you it would be coming back. Of course it was coming back. Uh, don't worry, we know that actual live tennis is happening. This Tennis Relived and our second one prior to the US Open is not in place of us talking about live tennis uh, and related things. It is an addition and a very special and necessary addition as well. This one will be focusing on the life, the career, the legacy of Althea Gibson. And our next one will be focusing on the very same of Arthur Ashe, respectively the first African-American woman and man to win Grand Slam titles. And in Althea Gibson's case, the first African-American person to be admitted to play professional tennis. Um, An extraordinary woman, an extraordinarily important figure in tennis's history and one that hasn't been sufficiently remembered or given her dues always over the years. So we're hoping to write that in a very tiny, tiny way today. It's certainly been an extraordinary learning experience for us to to get to know these two players and their significance in tennis history. Uh, so thank you, David, for your enthusiasm for Tennis Relived, <laughs> for getting <laughs> yes. us to this point. Yeah, I mean, it's very different what we're doing today and what we're doing with the Arthur Ashe um, podcast as well. When we were doing... The Roland Garros relived Wimbledon and the Olympics. They were all about events or matches or moments in time, specific moments in time. When we came up to realizing that the US Open for a start was going to happen and we really don't have two weeks worth of of shows to film, much as I'd love to come up with 20 wonderful matches and memories, which no doubt we will get to in the years to come. Yeah, David had a list of 12 Pete Sampras matches that he uh, (laughs) submitted for the short list of uh, US Open relived. Yeah, and 15 Jimmy Connors matches. (laughs) Correct. Yes. Uh, Including all seven from, I'm sorry, all five from 1991. Um, But um, yeah, when we came to to look at this and we started to try to think, well, what, what should we do? 
I personally suddenly realized the the gaping chasm in my knowledge in my reading of the game's history and I think particularly Althea Gibson I feel ashamed not to know what I now know and what we want to do with this show is is tell the stories that we've discovered and to properly tell their history uh, as best as we can. Yeah, I think we all knew that line first black woman to play the US Open and win Grand Slam titles but I'd, I'd never properly engaged with that line or really understood what that actually meant or considered what she actually had to overcome to become that um, because tennis was this elitist sport at a racially segregated time in America so it's an extraordinary thing that tennis was used as a vehicle by Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe to advance the black race and I'd never really I'd never really thought about that before how how what a what a strength of character and what a special talent it took to be able to achieve as a black person in in that white world and it's just been just been eye-opening really to have read and sort of spent time kind of in their lives over the last few over the last few days and weeks doing this research um, and and it felt very necessary and timely as well absolutely it is timely it feels like the right right moment to be doing this i mean there's never there's never been a wrong moment to do it and we we probably should have done it sooner but this is a very important moment um in the the civil rights movement in the black lives matter movement and to quote Billie jean king via mary carillo um you have to know your history or you're destined to repeat it so this is an attempt by us to get to know the sports history a really integral part of the sports history and yeah just to just to re-emphasize what david was saying there shame shame at not previously having enough of an appreciation of althea gibson and her significance my second u.s open as a fan was in 2007 um i'd previously been in 2004 both times with my dad just a little jolly to new york um and the opening ceremony that year um honored althea gibson because it was the 50th anniversary of her first title at the us open she won back-to-back titles in 57 and 58 and aretha franklin sung at that opening ceremony she she sung respect um, and of course i knew who aretha franklin was and i was very very excited to to see her and to sing along to respect and try and get my face on the jumbotron but i had no idea 20 year old me 21 year old me i didn't know who althea gibson was and okay i was only 21 but i had been a tennis fan for a long time and I'm not sure I ever had heard her name before it, or if I had, I had not registered it and not thought to myself, you should you should find out who that person is and what their significance is. So I feel retrospectively very ashamed about that. But I did enjoy Aretha. <laughs> and you weren't alone in not knowing who Althea Gibson was. Do we want to bring up the Federer quote? Not to throw him under the bus, but... Well, we've thrown ourselves under the bus first, well, Matt. I, th- I so think, I think let, the point let's is... Let's have Federer join us there. It's, it's representative of the wider 
misunderstanding or lack of knowledge of the tennis world of of certainly my generation and and yours and Roger Federer's part of those straddles them the fact that he did not really know who she was when he was asked about her legacy he said she was before my time what's the exact quote Matt I think he said you're putting me on the spot I don't know who that is I think is the quote because it was before my time and look he probably was completely caught off guard a little bit by it in a press conference. You know, they're expecting questions about forehands and backhands and matches and that kind of thing. And you do see it sometimes when they get asked a, a question on a topic they're not expecting that they can kind of just freeze and shut down a little bit. And I'm sure, I'm sure he probably did know who Althea Gibson was, but he didn't feel able to talk about it. And that is, I think, an illustration of the fact that as as you've been saying, her, her story just hasn't been told enough so that it's kind of right there in the forefront of their mind in a way that it should be. So who was Althea Gibson? Um, Matt, you've done some some extraordinary research that, that we've all read. Um, I've watched a, a film, American Masters Althea, over the last couple of days. David's been listening to some other rival podcasts, which we will accept in the name of research, but black mark against your name, David. Um, so who was Althea Gibson? Well, she was she was born in South Carolina in 1927, but she, she later moved to New York with her family to, during the Great Depression. To, to I think the family was sort of seeking economic benefits, moving to to New York, and she she became a a product of the the streets of Harlem. She was, in her own words, a street kid. She she dropped out of school. She actually ended up completing high school. I think in her early twenties, she started high school at the age of eighteen because she kind of just skipped it um, throughout her teenage years, um, and she started playing paddle tennis on the streets of Harlem. That's how she she got into tennis. She was naturally very sporty, played played all sorts of different sports. Um, I think she had a, a tough and complicated relationship with her father. He openly used to tell her, um, I learned from the, the Althea film, that uh, he had wanted a son and he had wished that she were a boy and that he was just going to treat her as a boy, given that she wasn't one. Um, and he used to, there are stories of him taking her up to the roof of their apartment and boxing with her, genuinely fist fighting with her to try and, as, as he put it, toughen her up. Um, and it's funny, there are a lot of, as you hear people start to talk about Althea, as we will do, we'll be hearing from all sorts of significant people. They do liken to her to a to a boxer, don't they? And those sort of street fighting qualities coming out, coming out in her tennis. Um, yeah, and that's something that, yeah, that she was well aware of. But it's, I, I suppose that that's not, that wasn't an unco uncommon story for people of that age and at that time. But it's a pretty extraordinary one to come from a family of sharecroppers in, in South Carolina, a job considered just just one step away from slavery, really, to and there's there's a whole lot of story in between that we'll come on to, but to come from that to being a professional tennis player, just alone is pretty extraordinary. And I think it's important to mention here that the USTA at the time was the USLTA, and it was a 
it was an all-white organization. Black people were not allowed to play in USLTA tournaments and a a rival tennis association, the American Tennis Association, the ATA, was formed in 1916 with the mission, really, of promoting tennis among black people. And Althea, once she'd picked up the game, was playing on that tour and kind of dominating it. I think she ended up winning the national ATA title 10 times. Um, but it was while she was playing on that that she was that she was spotted by Hubert Eaton and Robert Johnson, Dr. Johnson, as as he's known. And um, they realized that they were watching Althea Gibson, who was a woman of great skill, and they believed someone that could kind of transform the sport that they loved, which was tennis. And their mission was to kind of find a young black player who was able to integrate the white world of tennis. And they knew that it had to be a good player because they knew that that was the only sort of player that would be accepted in that world. They had to prove themselves with their talent and with their skill. And they chose Althea Gibson. They they realised her potential. And um, Gibson went to live with Eaton and his wife during a school year, practicing on his court, attending high school, and then he and then Gibson would spend the summer traveling around this ATA tennis circuit with Dr. Johnson. And, you know, steadily Gibson's game improved. And she reached a point in 1950 where she was really good enough to be playing on the main US LTA tour rather than just the ATA tour. But there was there was still that barrier that had to be broken down. It's funny, one of the things that struck me about that, that her involvement with the ATA, which of course was for exclusively black tennis players, was that she was an outlier even within the black tennis world because, um, and and th- this is something I got from the th- that documentary, that e- e- there was a certain class snobbery in the ATA. It was for the black bourgeoisie. It was for the black intelligentsia. And she was none of those things. So not only was she an absolute outlier just by virtue of being a black person, she was also a- an outlier within the the what should have been her her quarter of the sport it wasn't she was she was an outsider on on every front and i i don't think it's possible to to um understate the significance of dr johnson in her development because he's somebody that that comes up repeatedly in in her story he was also um important to arthur ash and and leslie allen who will 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 hear from and yeah, he was obviously an extremely significant person. But as you say, Matt, until 1950, there was this huge obstacle, a huge wall in the way of her properly becoming a, well, not even a professional tennis player, just competing in tennis at the highest level. And it took a white woman to change that. It took Alice Marble, who was, was she the world number one? at the time or the Amer- I think she was the American number one I'm not sure world number one was a thing um, but she was the top ranked American tennis player she had status and, and cachet within the sport uh, Richard Evans the uh, 
the tennis journalist who we will be hearing from a bit later told me a, a story which sounds like it, it will need its whole own podcast about Alice Marble being some sort of spy during the Second World War. Uh, possible tennis relived episode on that in the future. Uh, but Alice Marble wrote a letter in American tennis, uh, American lawn tennis magazine. That said, or a portion of it said, if tennis is a game for ladies and gentlemen, it's time we acted a little more like gentle people and less like sanctimonious hypocrites. If Althea Gibson represents a challenge to the present crop of women players, it's only fair that they should meet that challenge. And one month later, Althea Gibson was admitted to the US National Tennis Championships at Forest Hills, what the tournament that would later become the US Open when tennis became professional. And she became the first ever black player to compete there. And she went on to compete at Wimbledon the next year. Well, what strikes me through all of that storytelling and reading up on it is is that combination of the activism of Alice Marble, the the intervention that she that she has there in order to to force hands, but also the need for this this diplomacy from from Althea Gibson and from Mr. Johnson and the people that are trying to prepare her and enable her to to infiltrate this this sport that just doesn't allow black people to play it and. If they only were going full on, head on, and trying to break the walls down with with fury and activism, it wasn't going to work. It had to be married with with a diplomacy in order to be accepted at the same time, and and that's one of the the most fascinating elements to me of both Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe's story that there wasn't a single way in order to achieve the goal that they eventually had in order to break into the sport and, and to be accepted. And um, and this was a moment showing both. There's that quote, isn't there, that that Dr. Johnson was preparing us for a world that didn't want us. Mm. And, I, and I think there's something that we can that we can all learn from Alice Marble's intervention in that black people shouldn't have to dismantle the problem that they didn't create and I think white people can and must help and Alice Marble is a is, is an example of that and together they were stronger because racism is all of our problems and it was it was up it was up to someone like Alice Marble to take that step and she really didn't mince her words with uh, with that letter and and it seemed to just have this really massive impact as you said a, a month later she was admitted in into what is now known as the US Open. It's uh, I think it's a great example for us all that from Alice Marble. Absolutely, and uh, it, it seems it seems to me that in 1950 there was just no ignoring Althea Gibson and her game. Her game spoke for itself by that point, and she she described her own. Unfortunately, there are. There is very little footage that we could find of Althea Gibson actually playing tennis. There is sort of odd snippets here and there. Um, but in terms of sustained match footage, there is very little available. Um, she described her own game as aggressive, dynamic and mean. 
which I love. <laughs> I would love to be able to describe my own game in the same way. Um, but but yeah, so let's hear from from Steve Flink, who is one of the sport's great historians, if not if not the greatest uh, historian of the sport, on what her game was like um, and what made her such a great player. Yeah, she had a very big serve. First of all, she was nearly six feet tall, so that was uh, you know that that's the her height was very comparable to a lot of the top players today. Uh, so she was remarkably tall for her time, took advantage of her reach and her height and had a very big serve that was kind of the cornerstone of her game. A lot of power off the ground too. She is an attacking player, but the serve was really, it kind of revolved around that. And, uh, and she had a, one of the great serves of her era. So and and so she was kind of an electrifying player to watch because she she was adventuresome. She she uh, she came in a lot. She hit the ball big off the ground, particularly off her forehand, and then the serve, of course, was explosive. So a little bit, you know, it wasn't cut really from the same cloth as a lot of the other top women players of that time. I mean, there were serving volleyers who emerged after her, like Billie Jean King, Maria Bueno, Margaret Court, and they were very aggressive players, but they didn't rely on the power to the degree that Althea did. So in a sense, in some ways, she was a forerunner to the way the game came to be played in the era of the Williams sisters and, and onward. Mm, so she was a she was kind of ahead of her time in terms of how she played the game. Yes, I think you could say that. I think you could say that. You know, I mean, again, the the... <laughs> The more common recipe at that time, you know, in women's tennis was was consistency from the baseline. And as I say, there there were serving volleyers. Alice Marble had preceded her. Alice Marble was one of the great champions of Althea in terms of breaking down the racial barriers and defending her and helping her to get into the big tournaments like the U.S. Nationals at Forest Hills. But uh, she was known for having a, a, a great serve and, and and as an attacking player, but it was the power that Althea brought to the equation that really kind of separated her. She had a, a bigger serve than some of the other so-called serve and volleyers. So uh, that set her apart. Yeah, I, it's so interesting hearing that. I, I loved your line from the research, Matt, that she, she often used to foot faults because mm-hmm. of her eagerness to get up to the net. Um, and she had this extraordinary wingspan. The few cl- clips that I have seen, it just seemed impossible to get the ball past her because of her wingspan and the way way she covered the net, and of course her her hands as well um, on the volley. So she plays the 1950 U.S. Nationals at Forest Hills. She she wins her first round, and then her next opponent is Louise Bruff. Um, and to, to give you an idea of the, the climate surrounding this match and Althea's participation in this tournament, the, their headline in the uh, local paper at the time was Title Tennis Admits First Negro, comma, a Girl. <laughs> uh, just extraordinary. And for this, this match against Louise Broth, there were 2,000 people crammed into the stands. I mean, people. there was huge interest in this. Um, people were well aware of how big a deal it was that Althea Gibson was, was playing in this tournament. And many of them were openly shouting, beat the N-word. I mean, that was just, you know, <laughs> that was just a thing that it was okay to shout from the stands um, at the US Nationals at that time. Althea said that she... She blocked it all out. She said, quote, I was too arrogant and antisocial to notice, 
which uh, I absolutely loved. And just as you might expect if you were writing some sort of film script, it was a match mat- with pretty much every flavour of drama you could imagine. Yeah, it was an it was an incredibly dramatic match. Um, a guy called Bertram Baker, who um, was executive secretary of the American Tennis Association, said that I'll always remember it as the day the gods got angry, because um, Althea Gibson was in a winning position against Louise Broth, seven six ahead in the final set um, when no tiebreaks were played. So it was seven six, and the skies became menacingly black according to a really interesting report of it in sports illustrated in their in their vault um yeah so the skies became menacingly black almost as dark as the night with only lightning lighting up the clouds and uh, louise broff was about to serve and she was obviously very tired and people were sensing that this was althea gibson's moment to win and there was this anticipation in the crowd but it never came about because there was 10 minutes of thunder and lightning and a deluge of rain, pouring rain, and the players had to go off. And it was suspended until the next day. And when they came back, um, Broff had kind of recovered her composure and Althea Gibson was kind of in a bit of a state of shock because there'd been so much press coverage actually the night before like all the reporters were in Althea Gibson's face trying to talk to her before this match had even ended so she came back the next day not quite prepared and Broff managed to kind of regain her poise and win three straight games to win the match um but yeah just the the final line of this of this article in Sports Illustrated is whether or not Althea Gibson would have beaten Louise Broff that dark afternoon had the rain not come, will never be known. But observers of the match could see that she was destined for a great future. What what I loved as well from the way Althea would talk about herself is how highly she rated herself. And uh, it it seems so unusual, really, to to hear players talk about themselves the way she did. But she, she would... In the podcast I listened to, The Forgotten Pioneer, something that Wimbledon produced a couple of years ago, they've got Althea saying, it's been written that I had the greatest serve in women's tennis. And I believe it. And <laughs> she, she she would say it with this... I, I mean, I can't see her saying it, but it's as though she's got a twinkle in her eye. She knows, she knows she's that good. And she is going to bring it and show you that she's that good. And her her good friend Angela Buxton, who we reported on a, on a recent podcast, so sadly passed away. Um, she said that because of Althea's nature, she had to apologise for taking the ball in doubles all the time. She expected to win. She was in awe of her own talent, and that was very off-putting for her opponents. And obviously, she had this this physical stature of being nearly six feet tall with this massive serve, and she used to revel in it by the sounds of it and and what it was capable of doing to her opponents well angela buxton was an incredibly significant figure wasn't she in althea gibson's career and i i read the i I read the obituaries when she she passed away very recently and yet i still didn't really appreciate until i drilled down into to althea's career just how significant angela buxton was in the whole tale and and yeah, how significant she was to to Althea. 
Um, so, so Althea played the US Nationals in in fifty. She she became the first black woman to compete, first black person to compete at Wimbledon in in fifty one. But she doesn't make that that Grand Slam breakthrough, and she's making pretty much no money from the sport. She's she's barely making ends meet, um, and she's she's considering quitting the game um in her in her mid to late 20s and actually she was sent to asia by the state department on a sort of proper cultural propaganda tour uh organized by the state department a- across uh asia with uh, a a pretty well-known uh, blonde american tennis player called carol fagaros um and there were a few british players sent as well, sort of joint propaganda mission. And one of those um, was Angela Buxton. And they formed this instant friendship, um, which is so wonderful. And hearing hearing Angela talk about how, how and why she so instantly responded to Althea Gibson was amazing. It's such a desperate shame that we we can't get this in in Angela Buxton's words now, but uh, she was um, a, a daughter of Jewish parents who were evacuated during the war, um, and they were they were actually evacuated to South Africa. And she was she was very little Angela Buxton, and she remembers forming a friendship. She used to play in the street with a local black girl, and of course, you know, as a as a young child, she she didn't think anything of that. And actually, the neighbours advised her parents that it wasn't advisable for for Angela to be playing with a black child. And they were they were guests of the South African government, and they didn't want to anger any of the authorities. So Angela was told, "You can't play with her anymore." And it was obviously something that really stuck with her. Um, being Jewish during that time or during any time, but particularly during that time, she had an appreciation of persecution and, and being a minority and facing obstacles. And she said after that, Althea was the next black person she spoke to. Um, and they struck up this instant friendship and they they agreed to play doubles together uh, at at the French Open. And, and actually a doubles title with... The Angela Buxton was was a, a precursor to winning the singles title. She won the doubles title at Wimbledon in in fifty six, and and actually it wasn't till fifty seven, and then again in fifty eight that she she won the singles titles, and and it really helped her hone her game. I think playing alongside Angela Angela Buxton. I think Angela Buxton said they didn't really used to talk about the discrimination they faced. They just partnered up because they were both isolated themselves on the tour. And I think Althea Gibson said, no one had ever asked to play doubles with me before. And Angela Buxton was the first one to do that. And yeah, they won Wimbledon together and Althea Gibson won three Wimbledon doubles titles in a row. And the first of them with, with Angela Buxton. There's a, there's a great quote here um, from Angela Buxton that said, Althea's objective wasn't equal rights. It was to beat every bloody person she could lay her hands on so that she could show that she was the Queen Bee. <laughs> Which uh, I, I, I love the way 
Angela speaks in in in, the, in that podcast I mentioned to you, where you can hear the affection that she had for for Gibson and the understanding as well. She she knew how good she was. She knew how good Althea knew she was, and there was no. It never came across as any jealousy or or any disapproval. It was just it was amusement and it was appreciation. Such an interesting quote that because Althea. Althea herself said, I, I didn't I didn't beat I didn't consciously beat the drum for any special cause, not even the cause of the Negro in the United States. I believe that our best chance to advi- advance is to prove ourselves as individuals. And that that's kind of, you know, a different way of expressing what, what Angela Buxton was saying about her, right? She was she was doing the talking with her racket. Um, and Angela Buxton used to, to have her to stay during, during Wimbledon. And she tells this story in, um, the Althea documentary about how her, her neighbors raised a whole lot of eyebrows about it. And some of them would, would make comments and Angela Buxton just said, oh, I didn't give, didn't give two hoots. And she said, she said Althea barely seemed to notice. It was her that was, was noticing it all the time. Um, but I guess Althea was so so used to that that it would uh, it would barely raise an eyebrow for her at that stage. So in '56, Althea wins her first Grand Slam title. That's it. That's at the French Open, um, and she also won the Wimbledon doubles title alongside um, Angela Buxton that year. But it's in 1957 when she she becomes the first black person to win a Wimbledon title that she is embraced by the tennis world albeit briefly she was embraced wasn't she she wins that Wimbledon title she backs it up by winning the US Open title on home soil and then she defends those crowns the next year and she was handed that Wimbledon title in 57 by the Queen of England those images and thank goodness there is footage of that available that footage is extraordinary and isn't it really extraordinary and also her words in her autobiography about that moment shaking hands with the queen of england was a long way from being forced to sit in the colored section of the bus going into downtown wilmington north carolina it's um it's just an incredible moment and and end point in that regard of her journey of success. Um, and yet there she was at the absolute peak of the sport and yet unable to make a living out of it because the sport wasn't professional yet. And there was, there was no money coming in whatsoever. And, and that I think, even though we know that there, there is, a, that we exist in, in an open era now, and we kind of know what that means to a degree it's only when you go back that far that you realize just how far things have come because of people like Althea Gibson, that the the players that are playing now and earning these fortunes and haven't got a money worry in the world. Well, there was a player doing as much or more of them than they, than they have back 60 years, 70 years ago and wasn't earning a penny from it. And I think the fact that, Althea Gibson preceded the open era is not an excuse for why she's not been 
given her due in tennis history, but it perhaps is one of the reasons, is, is what Steve Flink was telling me when I spoke to him, that there were less press demands on players at that time. It wasn't, it wasn't this sort of culture of athletes as celebrities quite so much. And in a way, she was almost, she almost came too early in a way. And that is, that is really, really sad, but it's, it is perhaps one of the reasons. Um, I mean, she was on the cover of Sports Illustrated and Time after winning Wimbledon in 1957, the first black woman to do so. And she was lauded with this ticker tape parade when she got back to New York, the second black American after Jesse Owens to get that in New York City. So there was this recognition at the time, but it was it was kind of lost as as time passed. I think a part of that is because it, it was, as you said, before the open era in tennis. She When she won the, uh, the US Open title in 57, do you know who gave her the trophy there? Then Vice President Richard Nixon. So she had a Queen Elizabeth II, Richard Nixon, back to back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you said, Matt, she becomes double singles Wimbledon US Open champion 57-58 she she is lauded and 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 celebrated during that time she also won five Grand Slam doubles titles one mixed doubles title um, so her total Grand Slam tally was 11 including three successive Wimbledon doubles titles from 56 to 58 only one of those actually was with Angela Buxton the other two were with Darlene Hard and Maria Bueno um, very interestingly uh, she's the first black player to be ranked number one in the world but she kind of exited the sport in her prime because she she couldn't put food on the table she couldn't make ends meet she had to try and find ways to make money and those ways included releasing an album um uh, a musical album of her singing she by all accounts had an extraordinary singing voice it included her starring in a hollywood film in which p.s she played the the servant and was killed off halfway through um and it included her becoming a professional golfer which is a sport just as white and just as elitist yeah. as tennis um and i think she also signed briefly with the harlem globe trotters to um she did to kind of play some exhibition tennis during the breaks in their shows yeah so yeah i mean she really did have kind of have to try these other methods to as you said to just make some money which is which is really 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 tragic when you think of how much she achieved in tennis and how little she got out of it mm. well if you consider that a player that wins Wimbledon or the US Open would have six maybe six sponsors who are all paying massive bonuses for finally winning a grand slam these days um and when she's finally had enough of the sport she would perhaps go into the commentary booth and earn a good solid living from that or make appearances you know the things are so set up now for money making and really it's it's because of players like her that, that that's possible by 1960, I think it was, she was she was sort of dabbling in a little bit of print journalism. She was actually signed up to work with the Evening Standard, the London, what was then the London Evening Standard, uh, a London um, newspaper. 
um, still is a London newspaper or national newspaper now, um, during Wimbledon that fortnight. Um, and that uh, was when a young novice British journalist, or what, which is what he was then, Richard Evans, he was just starting a new job at the London Evening Standard. And that was, that was when he met Althea, just before Wimbledon. She's the reason I got into tennis. I, I was straight out of the army, Friday of Queen's, 1960, walk into the Evening Standard to join them as rugby and rowing correspondent. Charles Winters in a flap because he'd hired Althea Gibson the previous year to write articles during Wimbledon. And the literary editor had done it. And he said to Charles, I, I, I'm too busy. You know, it was fun, but I don't want to do it again. And uh, uh, Charles was literally talking to the sports editor and uh, he turned around and saw me. He said, well, you've got this young man joining the paper. Give him to Althea, a phrase that changed my life. So I I got on a bus and went to Queen's, walked up the steps of the clubhouse, and there was Althea. And I said, hello, I'm Richard Evans. I'm going to write your copy. And that started it. What was she like? Charming. (laughs) She really was. She was just sort of open and a uh, big smile. Oh, that'll be fun. And off we went on, on the Monday on the front page of the evening standard, it was Althea Gibson talking to Richard Evans. And we, you know, she talked and I wrote <laughs> on deadline as we used to. And, um, then we obviously, you know, got on well chatting away and it came to the end of the tournament. And, um, uh, the Wimbledon ball was at the Grosvenor House and no one, I mean, she'd been twice as champion, um, but no one seemed to be asking her to go to the ball. And so I said, would you like me to take you? And she said, oh, how lovely. Thank you. So I took her around to my mum's place where I was living. And um, my mother was, uh, I said, can I bring Althea around for a drink? Because it's down the road from the Grosvenor House. And my mother said, well, of course. But she was very nervous because she'd literally never had any social interaction with a black person. I mean, one just didn't. And um, she was a little bit nervous about it. But, I mean, Althea was, was... Totally at ease, graceful, charming. My mum, you know, got her a drink and I don't know what we had, probably a sherry or something. And uh, so for, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, we had a chat and then we got a cab down to the Grosvenor House. And I remember walking down, I don't know if you know the ballroom at the Grosvenor House, but it's needless to say spectacular. And there's this wonderful circular staircase leading down into the ballroom itself. And I I don't know whether it hit me so much right at the time, but looking back, I must, all those old codgers with the LTA and all all that crowd of that time must have looked up and seen me. I was completely unknown in the game. This young reporter with the former champion who happened to be black. And I'm sure there were all sorts of comments, which I didn't hear. Um, but, um, she, you know, we sat on a table with Ted Tinnerling and, um, we danced and, uh, the, I don't know, have you seen the photograph of me dancing with Althea? I have. It's quite a photo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, and, and that was it. And after that, 
I met her maybe three or four times, I mean, at tournaments, but literally just to say, hi, Althea, how are you? You know, nothing deeper than that. But um, that was my experience of Althea. No, Richard, I'm not familiar with the ballroom at uh, the Gravener House <laughs> Hotel. No, I'm not. Um, I, I did that interview a couple of days ago, and I still cannot get over the fact that 20-year-old Richard Evans, working in tennis for the first time in his life, had to invite two-time champion or two-time singles champion, three-time doubles champion, Althea Gibson, to the Wimbledon ball, that he was the one with the tickets and he had to invite her. I mean, thank goodness he did. And the the her grace to accept that invitation, you know, I can imagine that in this similar situation, I mean, obviously pretty much impossible for me to imagine that, but attempting to... I would angrily, I would cut off my nose to spite my face and say, no, well, if, if they don't want me, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. And the grace of her to accept and just want to be there and want to accompany him and to go and to to dance and to ignore um, what, as we heard from Richard there, what I'm sure were were whispers and funny looks and all the rest of it, I find that extraordinary. Mm. Uh, I've already used the word ashamed once and it it again makes me feel like that, that, that this went on. Um, I, I, I'm happy at least to be able to think th- things have changed. Um, I mean, they have changed, but that, that it's, it's impossible to conceive of that, isn't it really? Um, that, uh, that somebody so decorated as a, as a, a champion of, of Wimbledon is is just forgotten like that, um, and uh, yeah, Richard uh, Richard tells the story well. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. 
That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So that was in 1960. Um, so Althea Gibson's 33 years of age by that stage. Some years after that was when Althea Gibson was first encountered by a certain Mary Carrillo. Uh, and here are Mary's recollections of that encounter. The Women's Tennis Association um, provided us uh, a, a day when we could meet with her and she could tell us her story. And, and she told us about her struggles and her childhood. There were a bunch of you know, young tennis players there. And she talked about her drive and the fact that she never really made a lot of money from the sport. Uh, and then she gave us words of wisdom. And then, Catherine, she, you know, she talked about all of the loves of her life and, and the fact that she had put out an album of songs. And then... Just when you think things were wrapping up, she belted out a song, like a jazzy, gospely, a cappella song that made the windows in the room like shudder. It was um, everything. Uh, look, I love listening to, to people talk about their passions anyway, but here's Althea, and she had this really cool voice anyway, just a speaking voice. But then she bangs out this tune. And then we had, like, we were allowed to ask her questions. And, of course, you, you know me well enough to know my hand was raised more than anybody else. <laughs> and I just kept peppering her with questions about the time because I didn't, I've never seen a lot of footage of Althea, but Billie Jean had certainly told me a lot about her. Billie uh, loves history and continues to tell us to this day, you know, you have to know your history or you're destined to repeat it in all the worst ways. Um, so I was asking Althea, you know, well, wait a minute. So was the grass at Wimbledon that much better than the grass at Forest Hills? I heard Forest Hills grass stunk. Is that why you served in Bali so much? Or were you going to serve in Bali anyway? But then, I mean, she just had such a, a turbulent biography. Um, this great looking stately woman had it so rough, so rough. You could tell that, you know, Althea, and she talked about her hard times. She, she talked about the fact that, she, when she started to learn about tennis, because she was a great athlete in other ways, but when she started to uh, learn about tennis, and it sounds like she took to it right away, she would lose a match and want to beat up the person who had beaten her, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> she had to be talked down from that attitude, not exactly, you know, what people were looking for there. But I think she understood, I think, uh, like, like Arthur Ashe, I think they... They knew exactly what they were meant to be, you know, from a pretty early age. They knew they could be groundbreakers. They knew they could, um, they could do special things. But, you know, she had a far sadder life than Arthur. And then towards the end of her life, when she wasn't well and she couldn't pay her bills and she couldn't take proper care of her, her physical needs, and sadness had just swallowed her up. Uh, the players, the WTA players, were were told that she was destitute and in you know dire straits. And I remember we had sort of an emergency meeting of players when we heard about the plight of Althea Gibson. And a lot of people, you're right, a lot of people didn't even know who she was. You know, she played at a time, you know, in the late fifties. It wasn't tennis wasn't open yet. She missed out on all of that. And here she is. She's got no money. So a bunch of us were sitting around a big old table, 
And, you know, someone suggested, well, we should get her. We have to let her know that we appreciate her. We should get her a plaque. Uh, we should get her something from Tiffany's. Or, and I, I'll never forget Billie Jean King, who almost never, you know, got that excited and lost her temper in, in a meeting like that. She said, she needs money. She needs money. That's what we have to give her. And like she sort of, Billy just sort of set us all straight. Here's this great champion, this important woman, this pioneer in the game, and she had nothing. And that's what we did. We all, you know, put in some money and helped her. And for a while, it sustained her. Um, But yeah, she had a tough, tough life, but such an important one. An extraordinary couple of recollections there from Mary, brilliantly told, (laughs) as always. Um, Unfortunately, it does bring us to just the most desperately sad portion of this story. I I knew in brief that that her life was latterly not a not a happy one, in many ways quite a tragic one. But I still wasn't quite prepared for for how upsetting it actually was to to find out more about it. It really is upsetting to hear words like destitute associated with Althea Gibson. Um, that yeah, there's there's no hiding from it or getting around it. This this portion of her life story is desperately sad and the fact that we even though there's a statue to her now at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre and we're doing this podcast and maybe people will start to talk about her more there is no going back and changing the last well any of her life but those last 20 years when she felt like the tennis world turned its back on her Mm. she felt forgotten and uh, she was she was poor and she was desperate and she'd reached the end of the the road as far as she was concerned and the person she called at that point was Angela Buxton her old doubles partner her good friend Angie baby yeah and um that's what she called her and she called her and phoned her to say goodbye and the reason she did that is because she decided she was going to kill herself, that she was going to commit suicide because she'd run out of money and couldn't pay for anything. And I, I can't quite believe I'm, um, the words as they come out of my mouth that, that it had got to that level, but it had. And, uh, and Angela Buxton decided she wasn't going to have that. And, uh, and she, she sent a, she started to, to rally around and, and raise some money. I mean, you heard Mary Carrillo there talking about how they, the players led by Billie Jean King raised some money. Well, Angela Buxton changed, changed the last few years of Althea Gibson's life. She extended her life by several years and helped her to, to live in some comfort. And, uh, and she did so by um, writing to Tennis Week, which was the, magazine of the time everybody read it and uh, uh, a journalist there took her letter wrote a big article about the state the the dire straits that Althea Gibson was in and money just suddenly started to flood in from all over the world people sending envelopes with money in them for her because of what she'd meant to them even though Perhaps she didn't know at that point that that was the case. She she felt forgotten, and it 
this was obviously so pre-internet and pre-opportunity to connect in that way. And suddenly people were making gestures from all over the world to raise money for her and, and they raised nearly a million dollars in order to help her. Yes, that was in 1995, um, I believe. And uh, she she went on to live another another eight years. She passed away in in 2003. Um, and as you say, it, it none of that righted any of the wrongs, but it at least enabled her to enabled her to <laughs> literally continue living, um, which is an extraordinary thing to be to be saying. Um, she. She paved the way for other black players. If it if it weren't for her, there would never have been a Zena Garrison or a Venus and Serena Williams, and now a, a Coco Goff. Someone has to go first, um, and it's. It, it, she was very rarely seen publicly in those latter days of her career. In fact, I think the last notable public appearance by her, certainly in the tennis world, was in in 1990 when Zena Garrison reached the Wimbledon final and a match that, that we relived just a few months ago, a match that we were horrified and and naively surprised to discover that Zena Garrison didn't have a sponsorship deal that tournament, despite being a top 10 player. And she didn't get a sponsorship deal until, until that final, a kit sponsor that is, which is just extraordinary. And of course, Althea Gibson was there that day in the centre court watching Zena Garrison play um in that final um and she was a huge influence on garrison's life was althea gibson and and david you've spoken to to zena garrison and um she had the chance to to visit her and and see althea not long before she died in 2003 i actually right before she died had the opportunity to sit with her and Billie Jean King in the same in her apartment, and them listening to the stories of them talking about you know the days when coming up, and that was like one of the most powerful sit downs I had ever been in my entire life. <laughs> um, so that was really cool. And she then she died, you know, I think like a month or so later. Yeah, goodness me. What a what a moment in history for you to yeah as you say to be part of wow um, do do you think she was given the recognition she deserves for what she no achieved? not at all I don't even have to let you finish absolutely not <laughs> like it's like um, and she was bitter for it you know she was bitter for it from a long time and I really hate that she passed away being as bitter as she was and not feeling the love and you know it took 20 years to get the statue at the US the statue of her at the US Open you know and with the with the determination of Billie Jean King who and her best friend Fran Gray who died you know who died recently um kept that kept that going and they finally had it yeah well it's it, it is one of those things isn't it with the years and perhaps more recognition is coming, and as you say, she she didn't get to see it, but at least it's coming. Yeah, I mean it's just a part of the times as well, and you know I I look at the evolution from her to Arthur to myself. I mean to Leslie Allen, 
to myself, to Chandler Rubin, you know, to Venus and Serena, and, you know, to now to like someone like Coco. So things have gotten better and have gotten changed, but in the overall aspect, because we see the great champions that are at that level, but there's still not enough of us that are coming at the lower level. Or and and look at men. When was the last time we saw a men champion? It's been a long time. Black champion, I should say. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I suppose that the other the other issue is people in power, diversity of people in power. I know Katrina Adams was is is a, a very significant figure, but um but that's also important. Yeah, but it's also she's there, but how much can one person do? <laughs> you need other people to back you up. <laughs> Would you say you felt there were any downsides for you as a player coming up in, in inevitably and constantly being compared to Althea? I think that, the, first of all, I think the only downside was like, um, for me, is not really totally understanding what that meant. Um, I, I was very fortunate to have a lot of amazing people around me that would help. But sometimes being the first in, in a very long time, um, you're kind of just out there by yourself, just kind of making it and seeing what happens. And, you know, um, so it was, it was a good and a bad. Um, I wish I would have had maybe just a little bit more knowledge of something, but then I wouldn't have been the first. So interesting. And it, and it is fascinating to to hear from those women that that followed in, in Althea Gibson's footsteps that were grateful to her and privileged to be mentioned in the same breath at her, as her, but also burdened by that fact. And of course, before, before Zena Garrison, there was, there was Leslie Allen doing that in the late seventies and early eighties. And in fact, Leslie Allen in 1981, so 31 years after Alice Marble's letter, it, it took, so Althea retired in the late fifties. It took until 1981 for another African-American woman to win a WTA title, and that was the Avon Championships in in 1981. And and Leslie Allen is somebody who I had the great privilege to interview. Um, she, well, we're just going to let you listen to it um, because she was fascinating. And obviously, Althea Gibson is somebody that was immensely important and significant in her life right from the very start. I grew up with an autographed picture of Althea Gibson that sat on our television. It was a combination TV and record player from back in the day. I still have that picture, actually. Um, and it said, to Sarah, you know, best wishes, Althea. Um, and there Althea was sitting on a chair with her tennis ensemble. And, and I, I was most impressed by the fact that her name was on her racket cover. So as a little kid, I guess that that was the thing that seemed significant to me. And as I've often said, in African-American households in the 60s, um, you typically would find a picture of Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, and Jesus. So the picture that I had was of Althea. And that is because my mother played the ATA circuit as an amateur was a good player, loved tennis, so she would have crossed paths with Althea on the ATA circuit and would have gotten the, 
the picture in that way. She might have even gone to see her play at Forest Hills or wherever. I don't know. When you turned pro in 1977, I think that was mm-hmm. that was nearly 30 years after that letter that was written by by Alice Marble calling for 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 black players to be allowed to compete in what had previously been white only events, um, mm-hmm. and that did result in change. But there were still not many black players around on tour. What are your memories of of being a black woman on tour in those in those very early days? Well, what you have to remember is when they opened the door for Althea, the typical timing thing that happened in that era from Althea's time until the start of women's professional tennis was the USLTA, which is what it was called, would allow one or maybe two African-American players. So you never had the door open full throttle. The American Tennis Association, which was the black association would nominate one or maybe two players of color to go and play and represent quote the race in the USTA USLTA events so that is one of the reasons why there was such a gap between when Althea was allowed to play and when I was playing on the tour because for so many years the actual number of black people allowed had been restricted. And a lot of people kind of forget that notion. They think, okay, they let Althea play, now blacks can play. No, that wasn't how it was. They would say, we got one spot for the black people, or we got two spots for the black people, now send us one or two. So when I started, um, obviously those rules weren't in place anymore, because I'm now playing trying to play it on the professional ranks and it's based on your ranking and how you do. But I still felt that pressure of representing the race because we had been groomed to know that only one or two are going to get through and you have to act right and present yourself in the best possible way at every moment because if you don't, they're going to shut the door and not let us in. That. That's such an interesting point about feeling this responsibility to represent your race because tennis is is such a selfish sport. And mm-hmm. I guess you were competing against people that were able to be completely selfish and individualistic about what they were doing, whereas you felt that burden and responsibility. Yeah, that's just the, the, ba- the sort of the baggage or the knapsack that people of color carry with them every day. And it was interesting because... Even Martina said to me when we were having a conversation about this very thing, and I was talking about some of the discriminatory things that happened to me, which pale in contrast to what happened to Althea Gibson. But she she sort of said, I didn't realize you had to go through that, you know. Um, and, I, and I was like, no, I, in, in addition to trying to figure out how to beat you, I also had to beat down, you know, <laughs> institutional racism, but do it with a smile. Did you uh, did you feel things change over the course of your career? Well, I think the thing that changed was when I showed up on the scene, one, because I was not known to the greater tennis population at large because I had not come through the junior ranks, so people had not watched my ascent. It was almost as if I had dropped in from outer space. So it wasn't in people's purview that black women played tennis at a high level. That was just an anomaly. You know, they couldn't wrap their heads around it. But fast forward to by the time that I had retired and worked on the corporate side of of tennis and today's world, well, everybody knows that black women 
uh, play tennis. And, and I think the, the point was driven home one time when I was in, um, I used to live in New York City, and I was in the subway. And um, there was a homeless guy, and I had just come from Wimbledon. Uh, Wimbledon was probably still going on, but I had a bag that said Wimbledon, and he, he said, hey, hey, wait. And I maybe even had tennis racks with me, I don't remember. But he said, are you that, uh, that uh, Vanessa girl playing over there? And he was really talking about Venus, but it was more that a black person, a black woman succeeding in tennis had permeated every level of American life. That any person on the street now knew black women played tennis versus when I showed up, it was like, can I help you? You know, yeah, I'm here with my tennis racket, just like those four other blonde players that just walked through and you just said, come on through, girls, come on through, girls. But when I got to the, you got to me, you said, excuse me, can I help you? And the need to call in to say there's a person out here named Leslie Allen who says she's a player in the tournament. And you have to wait either for those girls to look back and say, yeah, yeah, she's a player or for someone inside to give me the, the OK. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let her in. Just going back to to what you said right at the end of your previous answer about having to do everything you did with a smile, that's really interesting. Is that for you about being? Is that perhaps a difference between being a man of color and a woman of color? You you know, as a woman, nobody nobody likes an angry woman, right? That's the that's the old adage. And Serena has talked quite openly about fighting that against that racist trope that she's had to endure her whole career of of the angry black woman? Well, it is definitely a racist trope about women, black women, that they're angry. And it's sort of like a double-edged thing because if, if a black person acts a certain way, then they're angry, they're bitter, they're out of control. The same with a woman. If a white person acts the same way, they're passionate, they're committed, um, they speak, isn't it lovely? They speak their mind. And if you just kind of compare and contrast, if Arthur Ashe had acted on court like John McEnroe did, then he would not been, have been described in the way that John McEnroe was. You know, Mac was, he was fiery. He was, you know, all of the positive things. It would have been a negative connotation for Ashe. And um, so many of us had to stifle how how we wanted to act or say um, for risk of messing it up for the next generation. So it's a little, it's a lot freeing that um, to see Coco Goff be able to state her case and not have to, the pressure of worrying, am I going to mess it up for the next generation? Because people of color are now so entrenched, at least in the uh, tennis playing part, maybe not so much in the executive side. You know, when you, when I look back to my times in dealing with Althea, and listening to her, um, you know, it's it's just amazing to think that someone, I think of it two ways. One, that someone could tolerate and exist in a world that didn't want her, but still go out and basically kick everybody's butt and be the champion and have to be faced and exist in a world that didn't want you. And even if you were a champion unaccepted when you won uh the avon championships in 81 um mm-hmm. you, you became the first uh, african-american woman to win 
a significant pro tournament since Althea in 58. What what was it like following in her footsteps and and constantly being compared to her? Well, looking back on it, I have one opinion versus what I had beforehand. And when I first had an opportunity within the first hour of training with Althea, because over the course of my career, a lot of uh, coaches and pros have had their hands in my game, so to speak, and had an impact. And so her impact was Zena Garrison, Kim Sands, Andrea Buchanan, and myself came to Sportsman's Tennis Club to train with Althea. So at the time, I thought the pro, the, the, the owner of the club, who was African-American, it was um, that he had done this to help us as young players. When I look back on it, I realized because tennis had turned its back on Althea, he thought of a way that Althea could bring value to the current players. And so I used to only look at it from the lens of she was there to help me, but then I also realized that the owner of the club was so forward-thinking and saw how she wasn't getting opportunities in tennis, this would have been 79, Um, let me give her one so she can lend her expertise. So Althea sat us all down and said, you know, what are your goals for tennis? And, and so I very proudly said, um, I want to be, um, I want to be in the main draw of WTA tour events. And I was so proud of myself. And, you know, I puffed my chest up and we were sitting at a table and Althea was standing looking at us. She looked at me like with this, this taciturn gaze and said, with your wingspan and, and put her arms out to the left and right, you need to think about winning WTA Tour tournaments. And I tell you, like, at that moment, it was almost like the blood didn't run from my face, but I was in my mind thinking, wait, this is a two-time Wimbledon U.S. Open champion that's telling me, little old me, late starter, late to the game, Leslie Allen, that I need to be thinking about winning WTA tournaments. So it was like, oh, everything has to change. I got to change my whole approach to everything. So as I began to do that, you know, within weeks had qualified in the French, got to the round of 16, came around to the U.S. Open, did well there. My ranking went up 100 points. And so now I'm not playing all my matches at 10 o'clock in the morning when nobody's in the arena. I'm playing feature matches times or whatever. But I'm also now being introduced as the first, you know, woman on the tour since Althea or whatever. Um, So I was a little bit not annoyed, but I wanted to be seen as a tennis player. And it was almost like they were saying, well, here's our black player, Leslie Allen. Here's our black player, Leslie Allen. Um, and if somebody was going to describe how I played, most people would easily, easily say, oh, she plays like Althea Gibson, big serve, big volley, or good volley, yada, yada. And that, like it was easy shorthand, like you don't have to do any research or anything. So looking back, if you're going to say Leslie Allen in the same sentence with Althea Gibson, I am so proud and honored to be there. But when I was playing, I was like, why do I have to always be identified as the black tennis player? Why can't I just be, quote, a champion on my own right? In terms of what you experienced in your career, what was the balance between direct and overt racism and systemic racism and unconscious bias? And how have you felt that 
shift over time? Wait, is that like 15 questions? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, there's a lot going on in there. <laughs> okay. 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 So here's one thing. Most of my competitive tennis was at a professional level. So I don't have the scars from and the roadkill from anyone of my age or even younger that, or even still today that has to navigate through the American amateur tennis circuit. Um, so I feel lucky for that. The few small tournaments that I did play, I was not a threat. I was usually my ride to the tournament was longer than my match. So there was no need for them to fix the draw or to put me against the, the other black player um, because I wasn't going to beat anybody. So if any other person of color that you speak to that played American junior tennis is going to have lots of horror stories about always playing the other black player first or second round or not being seated or just missing out on a selection for a team because they changed the rules. Blah, blah, blah. So from a standpoint of being in the game um, and systematic racism within the professional game in terms of how tournaments are held and run and draws are made, I didn't experience that because I was, it was at the professional level. You're mentioning draw fixing. I mean, I'm going to sound hugely naive here, but but that was commonplace. That 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 was something that happened, and everybody knew that it happened. In amateur tennis, mm. in amateur tennis, you know, because you're playing at the XYZ Country Club. You know, this is all before things were computerized and UTRs and all of this. It's just a room full of people that are going to make the draw. So if you have a chance to talk to Zena Garrison. She will tell you that. If you have a chance to talk to Lori McNeil, Kyle Copeland, any of them that competed, that was just a thing. And, and I grew up knowing that that was a thing because my mother playing amateur ATA tennis, um, you know, uh, if you ventured out and you played a USTA tournament, and if somebody else from the ATA also ventured out to play that same tournament, the likelihood that you two were going to play each other in the first round was high and if you didn't play in the first round, you were definitely meant, meant to be in the same quarter, so you would play in the second round. But So that was a known known. Wow. And, and even when people should be seated or selected for teams, you know, um, it's what you didn't, you, you know, what can you do? Nothing. When did that change? I don't think it has. You were, am I right that you were at the unveiling of Althea's statue? Yes, I spoke. It. Yeah. Um, how did you feel that day? It was one of the best days of my tennis life for a lot of reasons. Because um, for many, many years, decades, different groups, whether it was Xena, Billy, n- not so much me. I mean, I was, I was pro in something for, for Althea, um, but I wasn't on any particular task force. Uh, Zena was on the board. Billy had probably been on the USTA board championing for the cause. So to see it finally come to fruition after all of this and knowing that, I mean, Althea's story is an amazing story on, in so many ways to, to be um, pretty much an urban street kid, although she started out in South Carolina, to be taken under the wing and tutelage of two doctors, one for education and kind of grooming uh, in terms of smoothing out the rough spots 
So you can navigate in the tennis world. That was Dr. Eaton and Dr. Johnson for uh, tennis. And for them to say, you're going to play in Forest Hills one day. And even four years, when she was 17, my coach, Bob Ryland, who just died, he was 100, said to Alice Marble, you know, Althea should, should get a shot. It still took another four years for that to happen. So then she now can play at the at what is now the U.S. Open. But imagine a scenario where you you are you're not allowed in the clubhouse. You're playing in the tournament, you're not allowed in the clubhouse, or you have to come in the back door. Um, I mean, that's a real story. Just that little nugget of a lesson was a lot to learn. To then become the champion of the world and number one player and make that arc, that was pretty huge. To graduate from high school, I think she was 21 because she had dropped out for a few years. That's another moment of inspiration to um, have fought to become number one in the world in tennis and then have nowhere to go, nowhere, no, no place of employment other than, you know, the business world, um, but not to be lauded. And you can be lauded and celebrated with a ticker tape parade, um, but ultimately you're, the tennis community has turned their back on you. And so you endured all of that, every last bit of it, and still, you know, was a champion, be turned away at the U.S. Open, even. And then you go and you integrate another sport, just as white as tennis, which was golf. So to, to, to do that was just crazy. So for that statue to be on the U.S. Open grounds, for generations to come to find and connect to whatever aspect of her story that resonates with them um, and whatever is going on in their life, it's the source of inspiration and that you, you can succeed. The path may not be straight. The journey may, will not be easy um, because especially today, a lot of our young people are in a microwave generation. You know, can you tell it to me in a TikTok? You know, that's all I, that's all I, that's all I have a bandwidth for. So, um, with the way the exhibit at, at the statue will be where you can interact with it on your phone and learn different things. It's what, what I loved on the particular day was all of the players of color that I was on the tour with, we were there and current players, um, you know, Sloan Stevens was there and it was a sisterhood and we just picked up right where we left off, you know. So we all had our Althea story or experience. Some of the coaches, Bob Ryland, who had recommended her to Alice Marble, was there. He was 99 at the time. And then after the ceremony was over, after I spoke, Billy spoke, Zena spoke, um, then to watch the, the fans stop and take pictures with the statue or generations, two or three, to stop and show the little one and explain Althea's story or tell their, their story through Althea's story. It, it just became um, an in place, a meeting place, kind of a beacon at the U.S. Open. And I would just sometimes stand on the side and just watch families. You know, they were t- waiting to line up to take a picture, but just to see the intergenerational conversation that was being had 
uh, because even if you didn't know anything about Althea, you needed, you were learning. And like I say, it's all about being educated. So it makes you appreciate what is going on in the world or in the world of tennis that much more. As somebody that, that met her and, and knew her and got to play tennis with her, mm-hmm. how do you remember her? Well, in terms of tennis, the, the most amazing thing was when she would be on the court and would be demonstrating something, she would talk in the present. When I hit my serve, I do this. This is how I hit this top spin or I come in and I volley like that. And even that was intimidating. And I, I was as tall as she, but her persona was imposing, was, you know, she takes, she, she didn't suck the air out of the room in a, in a negative way. When she walked in the room, you knew she was there and you needed to pay attention or she got your attention. Um, so she had that presence. She was also, um, um, I would say there was forlorn or disappointed that, uh, in the, in the 80s when so many people were becoming touring pros for resorts or coming to be aficionados of tennis. So here was somebody that had won the Wimbledon and you had won Wimbledon and the U S open twice, but was not being invited to do anything. Right. Additionally, if she was being invited, it was because historically, even today, African-American women make less than white women and women in general make less than men. So in the totem pole, we're at the bottom. So in the tennis world, her accomplishments were number one. Nobody who was doing anything in tennis, um, whether it was from a commentary standpoint or anything, had won back-to-back Wimbledons and the U.S. Open. So if she was sometimes asked to do something, they offered her a crumb. And her attitude and her conversation with me had been, I'm a champion. I should get the whole cookie and not settle for crumbs. So it was a bit of a conundrum because then that kept her out of the game. And she watched other people that had not achieved what she had achieved get the whole cookie and more. So there was some, I don't know if it would be bitterness, but remorse or, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a bitter pill to swallow, I would say. Um, but she was also very giving of advice and understood where her place was on the continuum of tennis. And, and, you know, she made, I remember we were in Africa at, I was playing in a tournament and she was also part of an exhibition that we did. And so she was talking about my generation that, you know, basically that she had broken down the door so that I could get what I was getting and that the next generation after me would get even more. So she sort of understood what she did, the heavy lifting, and now everybody else was going to reap the benefit. And that's important for people to remember. So, um, and if you know the, 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 the harvest, the uh, horn of plenty, that thing mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and how it's really narrow at the end, but then as it goes out, you get the whole bountiful fruit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was at that little end piece where it all started. 
and each generation, because then it made it understand, okay, so I got it, then I gave it to Zena, who gave it to Chanda, who gave it to Madison, who gave it to Sloan, or what, whatever, whatever the continuum. Anyway, now it's on Co- at Coco, you know, so it's more and more and more. But we all need to remember we couldn't have started without Althea. And at once uplifting and inspiring and sad, <laughs> depressing and, and eye-opening interview with uh, with Leslie Allen um, and a wonderful perspective on Althea Gibson and, and what she meant and means to, to the world of tennis. It, it com, com, just a completely wonderful account of her experiences and 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 contextualising of Althea Gibson in, in the sports history. I should say, by the way, that um, Leslie Allen is founded and uh, instrumental in uh, her own foundation. It's called Win for Life Pro, win for the number four, lifepro.com, um, where she, she runs workshops and coaching um, and she develops life skills imperative to excel in today's world um win for life teaches the skills to be bold to be brave and to be empowered um and those those words are all so althea gibson aren't they if there's i mean i take so many things from from speaking to leslie allen but i think the the one thing that i think anybody can take inspiration from and I'm not wanting to end by putting a really positive spin on what is a a really a desperately tragic and sad story Um, but if there's one piece of inspiration that I feel like anybody can take from the Althea Gibson story it's that despite existing in a world which constantly told her she was worth less that she was worth less than her than her white competitors that she was worth less than any white folk um worth less than male folk she still believed in her own worth she knew her own worth she had this great sense of her own value and i can't imagine the strength it took to have that but i'm bowled over by it mm-hmm. and and leslie's accounts and we left left it in pretty uncut because it feels like it covers so much in terms of althea's life both the happy times the the breakthrough and the sadness of it all and it also tells the story of how far things have come and the good that althea gibson did in order to create opportunity for all of those that followed and she succeeded fully in that regard because we have the evidence before us today with venus and serena williams and coco golf and yet at the same time how far things still have to come and we you know you don't need a tennis podcast to tell you that but there are examples all around us and uh and i I just i'm grateful to at least have woken up to the importance of of listening to the accounts of people that that do know what it's like and to read the accounts of people that were there and around Althea Gibson and can tell her story for us to be able to help to tell it to you. Yeah, Leslie Allen saying that things haven't changed in terms of things like draw fixing probably still going on at the at the lower levels of tennis. Um Althea Gibson's legacy as the USTA president at the time said when when she was honored in that 2007 
ceremony is that whenever a minority touches a tennis racket now that that all started with Althea Gibson and um you know there were there were five percent of tennis newcomers at the time were minorities it's now 30 percent and so there has been this arc of progress but to hear Leslie Allen talk about how it wasn't just it wasn't just click your fingers and suddenly suddenly everything was better we're still learning we're still trying to improve and to know what Leslie Allen, Chanda Rubin and all the other players had to go through. But the fact that they were able to go through it because Althea Gibson had, had kind of done it first and done it before them. And um, that, is, that is her legacy to the sport. And that, and that will never, you can't take that away. And thankfully, I really do want to stress the importance of that statue that is, that mm. is at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre in front of the Arthur Ashe Stadium. That is... So important, as Leslie Allen said, there are four starting conversations and for getting people to learn her story. And, you know, I was I was reading that Billie Jean King was really pressing to, you know, was one of the people pressing to get that statue put up. She used to sleep with Althea Gibson's autobiography I called um, I Always Wanted to Be Somebody. And she was pushing for it. And it was actually um, a man called Lenny Simpson, who was a friend of Althea Gibson. And he ran a, a youth tennis program in North Carolina, and he showed his his kids the Althea Gibson documentary, and they were talking about ways that the USTA could honour Althea Gibson, and they were having a kind of brainstorming session, and just this line that came out of it was that, oh well, maybe we could name a hot dog stand after Althea Gibson, and that and 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 that was put in a letter to Katrina Adams, and she said we can do better than that. But that really lit a fire under me that, yes, we absolutely have to do something. It touched me. It got me going. And now they've got this statue. And I think it's it's important that to note that Althea Gibson's shoulder is shown in that statue. And that is symbolic of the fact that everyone has stood on Althea Gibson's shoulder since she came through. And you can trace that right up to the present day. Absolutely. I think that's a, a perfect note to end on because, yeah, that was that was something I uh, another significant thing I took from Leslie Allen is that these these statues, these these naming opportunities, we'll talk about it with Arthur Ashe as well. They matter. They they keep these people's names um in our minds they give them they give us a reason to to say their names over and over and that's not the whole job it's still all of our responsibilities to hear those names and to find out more about them to find out why they have a stadium or a statue named after them or or built in their honor but it gives us a, a reason and an impetus to do that um, and, you know, we're not going to get into the Margaret Court Arena shenanigans now, but it has given me a, a slightly different perspective on on that. And, um, yeah, these things matter. Um, and Althea Gibson mattered. And, and I hope that in a very small way, us telling her story matters. Um, I'm sorry that it was so desperately sad in some ways. I keep wanting to find ways to make this a little bit uh, perkier and and more uplifting <laughs> and i have failed to find any of those ways but um but it is important to do and uh, we hope you enjoyed it and thank you so much to all all those contributors that you've heard today to to Leslie Allen to Zena Garrison to Richard Evans 
and to Mary Carrillo and to, to Steve Flink, who Mary Carrillo, by the way, I feel like I should say, Mary Carrillo has called Matt the new Steve Flink. So it was the meeting of the two Steve Flinks, which we all very much enjoyed. Um, and we'll be back with another one of these in, in a couple of days with uh, the US Open relived Arthur Ashe story. I'd love, to, <laughs> I'd love to tell you that that one is going to be less tinged with sadness and tragedy, but obviously um, similarly to Althea Gibson, whilst elements of his story are fantastically uplifting and inspiring there is sadness and tragedy in there as well but it's just as important a tale to tell and we'll be doing that with the help of many of the same contributors and more as well we've got James Blake and and Chanda Rubin also talking about Arthur Ashe and his significance in their lives so join us for that in a couple of days time we'll also be doing US Open dailies of course the tennis podcast train does not stop so we hope you've enjoyed this one um and we hope you enjoy arthur ash's story and we hope you enjoy all tennis podcasts um and let us know if you are if you're not then keep quiet or stop listening uh we'll see you then flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.